Happy Easter, everybody. I'm not supposed to do this, but here for the first time since the baby was born, Devin and Morgan. Welcome back, guys. You all know that they went through a little bit of a few obstacles uh, to welcome uh, August Wyatt into the world, but we're glad to see you guys. Um, we've been praying for you and thinking about you. I guess I've seen you a couple times in the hospital, right? But uh, well, welcome back. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John. If you don't have a Bible, underneath the outer row of seats are a couple Bibles on top of each other. You are welcome to grab one of those. Um, if it's on the opposite end from you, tell somebody, hey, send me a Bible down. Uh, you're welcome to, to use that while we're going through the scriptures this morning. Um, you can actually have that Bible if you don't have one of your own. 1 John. It's going to be towards the, the latter three quarters of your Bible. For those of you that have been with us in the series in John, you will notice uh, as we start reading that these words are very similar. It's entitled by the, the author of the book, First John, the same one that wrote the Gospel of John, and the language will sound very much the same as well, and that's, uh, that's on purpose. And so uh, we're going to read these words out loud together. You'll see them on your screen, or you can read from your Bible or your app. We're going to read First uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Read with me. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we pause to acknowledge your presence. If you aren't here, then what we're doing, all of our worship is like clanging two symbols together. And so, Holy Spirit, because two or three of us are together, we know that you are in our midst. We welcome you. We acknowledge you. We, we confess we need you. Would you open our minds and our hearts and bring us to an understanding of your word today as we celebrate Easter? Would you, uh, would you focus our efforts on your son who, above all, died for us on the cross, but more importantly, by your spirit, you raised him from the grave to life eternal. And the neat thing is that you say that as he was raised, so will we, so will we, we be. And so we rejoice in that. We rejoice in Jesus' victory over the grave. We rejoice in Jesus' victory over death, hell, over sin, and over every enemy. We rejoice in that today. He is risen. Cause our hearts to rejoice in that, that our Savior is risen. For those who are here with us that have yet to profess your name, that have yet to trust in you, to, that have yet to believe, God, I pray that you would open their eyes, that they might see you clearly today. I pray that you'd open their hearts, that they might receive, and that they might believe. And we pray that in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Have you ever noticed that there are some times that you can talk about Jesus and there's some times that you can't? There, there are protocols to talking about Jesus. 
all the world religions actually talk about Jesus. When they talk about Jesus, they're professing Jesus as a great teacher, as a, as a great prophet, as a good example for all of us to follow. But it usually stops at, at that point. Pop culture talks about Jesus. Um, I can't give you examples, but one of the most notable things that we see in pop culture is how Jesus is the focus of a lot of cur- curse words or, cur- or just slang stuff. I-, I can't give you any examples. I get in trouble. But certainly some of you have used some of those. Pop culture, you see, uh, I love Jesus or Jesus is my homeboy T-shirt, that kind of stuff. Obviously, the cross which is symbolic of all of our Christian faith, most notably Jesus dying on the cross, is one of the most popular accoutrements, accessories, I should call it, from earrings to dangling necklaces to tattoos and the like. It's okay to talk about and represent Jesus in those terms, but when you actually do what our author, do, our, our author does in this passage, you actually cross the line. When you say that Jesus is more than just a teacher, he's the greatest teacher that has ever walked the face of the earth. When you say he's more than just a prophet, but he is the prophet, which brings God's word to the earth. When you say that Jesus is God, which is what John is saying to us in this passage, you cross way over the line and you do and you you say more about Jesus than our culture really allows to be said, at least in close proximity. You know, in our culture today, it's okay to post a Bible verse on Facebook. I was scanning my little timeline this morning and people are already, because it's Easter, you know, they're saying he is risen. I got some texts today from some some friends that I knew and actually some people that I didn't, and they're all touting, you know, praise God, it's you know, it's Resurrection Sunday and all that stuff. It's, it's popular, popular to do those things and say things about Jesus in, in those circumstances. It's okay to go to church every once in a while, but when you admit that you actually follow a homeless Galilean peasant who lived on the earth, claimed he was God, died, and somehow came back to life, when you say, I actually follow, worship, and adore someone like that, then you've crossed the line. But here's the deal. This is exactly what Christianity purports. If you are a Christian, this is what you believe. We believe that God is actual, that he's personal, that he's real, that he's knowable, and he's all those things singularly because of the person of Jesus Christ. And as we look at our text, what we see is that John, the the gospel writer, uses very common language that would have been familiar to his hearers in the first century, and he claims nothing less than Jesus is God. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John uses this concept called uh, logos. Logos is translated word. It's that word, word. In that first verse in our text, it means um, word or message, most commonly. And John is, when he writes, he's speaking to two audiences. John lived in Ephesus, which was a a coastal Greek city. And John was a young man when he started following Jesus. Coincidentally, he was the oldest living disciple, living to about 90, uh, 90 years of age. And so he's in his latter years when he writes this. But 
What John is doing is he's speaking to two audiences. Firstly, he's reminding those Jews who would have followed Jesus of the, the power of the word. When a Jew heard the word, lagos, word, they would have thought about the words that God spoke that brought the world into existence. And then God said, and it became. They would have recalled uh, the word that God gave in the form of the law at Mount Sinai that they lived by, the Ten Commandments and all the moral, ceremonial, and religious laws that Israel lived by for many, many years. They would have remembered the words of the prophets as the prophets walked the earth and represented God to them so they they knew what God wanted them to do. That's what an Israelite, a Jew, would have thought about as as John was saying in the beginning was was all of this stuff and he was the word. But John's main audience was a Greek audience. And the Greeks also understood this word logos, this this word. And for the Greek, they thought the logos was a force outside of them that directed everything else and it permeated and guided all things. To the Greeks, Lagos was the supreme governing principle of the world. And so John says this impersonal force to you Jews, but also to you Greeks, was not just impersonal force. He was actually personable. John says this unknowable entity is actually knowable. John says this God particle, to use a, a, a current scientific uh, phenomenon. They say we, we don't know a lot about how we get mass and matter. So we call it the God particle. But G- John is saying this God particle actually is a God person. The Lagos is Jesus. Jesus is God. And this would have been a, a radical statement. I, I don't know where you are in your walk with Jesus here in this room. Um, but this thing about Jesus being God trips a lot of people up. We can understand I mean, just look. I mean, the the Bible says that we can look at the stuff that's made and understand there has to have been some intelligent being with an intelligent design that orchestrated the world as we know it. And if you want to call it God, call it God. I mean, we can sort of handle that. But when you throw in the mix, there's another dude named Jesus who actually was on the earth and looked kind of like us. And you're calling him God, too. I mean, that that sort of like trips us up. We don't know what to do with that. But this is what John is saying. That's hard to grasp. And and here, here's how I came to 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 understand it. Um, and this is my challenge to you, as it was a challenge for me many years ago. You know, some of the things, some of these things that you read and that we hear about God, you have to receive by faith. God has to gift you faith to believe them. But another great portion of it comes from reading the Bible. And that's I mean, that's probably the best thing I did in all my life. I started reading. In fact, uh, when I went to college, I went to West Point. And I went to a Bible study uh, uh, hosted by this group called the Navigators, and we we read the book of John, the gospel of John. And I had never read the Bible before, and the words started jumping off the page. And so my challenge to you is, if you're confused about God, if you're confused about Jesus being God, then you got to start at that place that reveals who he is. you got to start with the Bible. And when you start with the Bible, this is what the Bible is going to tell you. For example, John 10, verse 30 I and the Father are one. Jesus is articulating. He's making the huge statement that he is God. He's just as as much God as God is God. Luke five, uh, the Luke Luke chapter five gives us uh, uh, one of the stories of Jesus healing a paralytic. Uh, it's 
hundreds of people were around Jesus, and some friends of a, uh, of a man who was paralyzed were trying to get him just close to Jesus so he could heal him, and they couldn't break through. And so they let him down through a roof, and Jesus looks at, their, at the faith of these, these guys that wanted their friend to be healed, and Jesus looks at the man and says, hey, uh, your, your, your sins are forgiven. And the religious people, the Pharisees that were there, I mean, they were taken aback by that. They were, they were offended. It's like, you're blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? And so Jesus retorts. He says, well, if it's better for me to say, uh, rise, take up your bed and walk, you're healed. I, I can say that for you. But it's easier just for me to say your sins are forgiven. No one can forgive sins but God. So Jesus is basically saying, guess what, guys? Big flash waving sign. I, I'm him. At the end of John, this is a famous guy at this point. Um, Jesus has resurrected. He's appeared before his disciples several times. Uh, at one time, he appeared to the disciples, and one guy's missing. His name is Thomas. And this is where we get this, this name, Doubting Thomas. And so Thomas wasn't there. And so they're gathered together at another time, and uh, Jesus shows up. And uh, before that, Thomas basically told the disciples, I'm not going to believe Jesus is resurrected. He's, he can't be alive. I saw him die. I saw the grave. And he says, unless I put my hand uh, in the, the hole where the nail went through, unless I put my finger in his side, I will absolutely not believe that Jesus is alive. Jesus shows up. Hey, Thomas, here you go. Press your fingers in my and my, my scars and my wounds to know that I am alive. And Jesus, uh, Thomas knelt on the ground and he said, my Lord and my God. That's what reading the Bible will help you to, to, to see. It'll give you faith to believe all that these other folks believe as they, as they encountered Jesus. And so unlike all the major religions in the world, unlike pop culture, we can't make Jesus out just to be a, a good teacher, just to be a prophet like all the other prophets or a moral leader that we could follow his example. Jesus claimed to be God. He acted like God. John says he was that which was from the beginning. But Jesus wasn't all only God. He was also a man. And what John is telling us in, in all of his gospel, but also in the first verse of this text, is, is that I saw him, I touched him, I, I walked with him for three and a half years. He was real. He was a real man. He was a real God. Jesus uh, confined time and space, unlike a God should do. He was a man. He had skin on his body. He ate food like we did. He did all those things that a human being would normally do. He was born as a baby in the most humble of circumstances, in a stinky, smelly stable. He sweated. He had emotions. He lived on earth in every respect like you and I do as human beings walking on the earth. Yet the Bible tells us he lived a perfect life. He was tempted in all the ways that we're tempted in our world even today. Yet the Bible says that he was without any sin. He responded rightly to all those who he was in relationship with. I mean, ever tried that? Have you ever tried to have the right word in the right situation for all those people that are in your life? It's impossible to do. Jesus did that. 
He was kind to those he should have been kind to. He was compassionate to those he should have been compassionate to. He was helpful to those who he should have been helpful to. He had ill words, angry words, but righteous anger for those that deserve that as well. Jesus lived the righteous life that we should all live, but we can't. And he died a brutal death on the cross. And that really is what we deserve, what we observe on Good Friday. Jesus was punished for our sin. He died in our place. This is what the cross does. On the cross, Jesus absorbs all of your sin, past, future, present. And the deal is, with all of us in here, all of us have sinned. Perhaps some of you in here have sinned greatly. You've lied, you've cheated, you've stolen, you've lusted, you have been angry when you should not have. You have done all sorts of things. Some of them we wouldn't even want to mention in this room. And on the cross, Jesus absorbs all the guilt that you might feel, all the condemnation that you might feel from the sins that you have committed. And those sins, the Bible says, you deserve to die for. Jesus died in your place. Now, there's another group of you in here who likely have been sinned against and perhaps sinned against greatly. Some of you have suffered injustice and betrayal and racism and abuses that maybe we can't even think about. And on the cross, God sends Jesus to absorb the guilt and the condemnation that you feel, perhaps because you participated in an event against your will. You might have been forced to do something that you didn't want to do, but yet you feel guilt and condemnation anyway. But more importantly, Jesus absorbs your shame. Just like he did Adam and Eve when they sinned and hid behind a tree and covered up themselves, God sacrificed an animal and substituted it for them, taking the, the, the skin of that animal and clothing them. God covers our shame. He does that on the cross when you've been sinned against. And so here's what the cross says to us. You don't have to let guilt and shame define you anymore. The cross says to us that those who are distanced from God are invited to come near. The cross says to us that those who were once condemned because of their sin are set free because Jesus forgives you of your sin and he reconciles you to God. That's what God has done for us in Christ. But, but here's the thing, and that's, this is why we're here. None of this makes any difference without the resurrection. That's the importance of Easter. And so on Easter, Resurrection Sunday, we are acknowledging that Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a brutal death, but he rose from the grave and he left our sin and our condemnation and our guilt and our shame in that grave, along with the death that he that he rose from our brokenness, all those things that are not right about us and consequently are not right about the world that we live in, Jesus left those in the grave, which means he defeated them and he offers us, those that trust in him, the freedom to live for him and not to your sin. That's what Easter's about. And so the resurrection is, is what undid John. The, and this is an interesting passage, obviously, to read on Easter Sunday, but what I want to convey to you is 
John lived around Jesus for three and a half years. He saw him do some miraculous things. He saw him do some things that would probably wow us that aren't even in Scripture. And as you look at the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, we're told that uh, Jesus has resurrected. Mary Magdalene has gone to the grave. She finds out that the tomb has been rolled away. Jesus' body isn't there. And so she rushes back and she finds the disciples. Peter runs out. John runs out because John was younger. He beats Peter and all the other disciples. He gets to the tomb. He looks in. No Jesus. All he sees is grave clothes. <gasps> What's going on? Peter gets there. Peter's bold. Peter doesn't care. Peter walks in. Where is it? Where is he? They pick up the grave clothes. Where is Jesus? And then lights start going on. Lights everywhere. <gasps> Remember what he told us? Remember what he said three days? And then he, he'd rise? Remember what he said? The, this is the lights start going on for John. He lived with Jesus for three and a half years, seeing him do all kinds of miraculous things. But the resurrection is what brought him alive. Not Jesus, John. The resurrection changed his life. So what I want us to see is three things out of this passage. The first thing is Christianity is historical. Christianity is historical. We're going to read the first two verses again. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John is saying, I was there. I was at the cross. I, I mean, I saw all of this stuff happen to Jesus. I saw him give up his spirit, his head hung low. I saw him say, it is finished. I remember when the, the, the sky went dark. I remember all the things that went on during that fitful time. Jesus didn't fake it. He was alive and then he died. I mean, he was really dead, like dead, dead, not not like walking dead, like a zombie coming back to life. For those of you that watch that show, he was dead. I watched him go into the tomb, John says. I held his grave clothes. I saw him post-resurrection appear to me. And this dead man was really alive. Jesus died in time, space and in history and his life, his death and his resurrection happened historically. That's what John is is telling us. And it's important for us on Easter to remember that this was an actual historical event that changes life as we know it. But John doesn't stop there. He says our faith is not just in that, that Christianity is historical, but it's also experiential. That's what he says in verse chapter, uh, chapter uh, what is it? Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We got a lot of different versions of fellowship. Fellowship is a lot of things. You know, for a lot of us, it's getting together with some Christian friends. It's, it's having some food. It's, it's sitting down with our Bibles open. And we're talking about the scriptures and we're sharing them with each other and encouraging, admonishing, exhorting each other on what the Bible says about about us. That's what fellowship is. But John is giving us a different perspective of fellowship. Not that our perspective is wrong. He's giving us really the ultimate picture of fellowship. And the ultimate picture of fellowship is 
It's holistic communion with God. And this is what I would offer to you. God wants out of us. He wants us to meet us with our heads, but he also wants us to meet him with our hearts. And it's important. Both of those makes you a a more full worshiper of of Jesus. Classic religion usually goes one way or the other. And perhaps you have been in situations or uh, uh, faith settings that have been like this. First, the, the first setting is this. Religion says, accept this dogma, believe these facts, follow these rules. If you do them, you're good. If you don't do them, you're bad. You're reprobate. You're sinning. Something is wrong. Don't worry about believing. Just do what the rule says. And some of you have been in those environments. You weren't allowed to think. You weren't allowed to question. You weren't allowed to doubt. And you dislike that setting because it, it didn't allow you to use your head. The other side of religion perhaps says, you don't need to think. Let's just have some fun. Let's just raise our hands, grab the chandelier. We're going to swing back and forth. We're going to run around the building. It's, it's full of emotion. And I would tell you, singularly, both of those are not necessarily wrong. But God wants this is Christianity. It's both head and heart. I will tell you, not every Christian is smart. In fact, I've met some pretty dumb Christians in, in my lifetime. <laughs> I'm not all that smart, but I've met some who are less smart than I. I would even use the S word. I'm not going to say it because my wife will get mad. But check it out. Some of the smartest people, some of the most brilliant, I'll use that word. Some of the most brilliant people in our world are Christians. So God wants us to use our head. He wants us when we doubt to go and find answers to uh, those things that 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 stick us and that are obstacles for us. He allows us to search out the scriptures and to look at all of the things that he's made to make sense of the faith that he's calling us to. It's okay for that to happen, but he also wants our hearts. And Christianity is experiential because God wants you to feel. He gave you emotions so that you would feel. He gave you the Holy Spirit so that you would be able to um, sense and feel him operating in your life. Christianity allows us to be both. It allow, uh, allows us to, um, to think and use our brain, but also to perceive God with our hearts. But let me offer you this. And, and, and we're, we're, we're talking here about uh, holistic communion with God. Christianity is experiential. Um, this is how I got Christianity. I got it through interacting with other people. And, that, and that's... That's that's what John means when he says our fellowship is with us. He's the text is saying uh, we learn the experiential nature of Christianity when we hang around the church. And I'll tell you, that's that's what got me about Christianity. I grew up in the church. I grew up going to church sporadically. But I, I, I mean, I had friends who I saw. Um, you know, go to church and they'd be one way and they they left the door to church and they were like hellions. And then I saw my own family. I, everybody on my mom's side went to church. Everybody on my mom's side sang. And I saw them act very spiritual when they went to church. And in the minute their, their pinky toe got outside of the door to church, I couldn't have told you if they were 
Christians or not. It just it didn't match and it didn't work for me. I just couldn't handle it. And so I went to, you know, I'm a, uh, a West Point graduate. I went to West Point out of high school and uh, in the midst of, you know, joining a, a cadet gospel choir, I used to sing. Um, I started singing and uh, I met two guys, John Harmon and Stephen Michael. And I learned Christianity through these two gentlemen. Of course, we're studying the book, the, the Gospel of John, and I'm learning about Jesus through, you know, through the words of Scripture, and they're coming off the page. But the experiential nature of Christianity, my, my Christian faith grew because I was rubbing elbows with, with, with dudes that were living it out. And here's the deal. John and Stephen were like me. They were cadets. They were African-American. Actually, Stephen was a, a, a foreign nationalist, Guyanese. Um, naturalized when he's eight years old, but they let me into the world. Not only they don't, they not only talk to me about Jesus, they let me see their life when we weren't in Bible study, when we weren't in church, and I saw them just being regular old cadets under the pressures of wearing a uniform, walking around, and doing the stuff that that cadets do. And peering into their life, I saw all those ways that they were like me. But more importantly, I saw those ways that they were not like me. They were unlike me. They believed in Jesus, and at that point. I didn't. And what I saw in them was it was so authentic. They weren't perfect, but it was it was a faith in Jesus that drew me to them. And so I would encourage you Christians in this room. know there's people like Jeff, 19, 20 years old that are looking at you and I'm peering into your life. And as you allow me, I'm going to learn Christianity by what I see in you. And I'm not looking for you to be I'm not looking for you to be perfect, but I am looking for authenticity. I'm looking to see if the faith that you're living matches some of the stuff I see in the Bible. Unfortunately, I'm looking to see if my expectation of you is true. I mean, don't get caught up with that. But people are looking at you and they want to know that God is real and you have a great opportunity to show them that, to show them what real faith in Jesus Looks like all that to say you weren't meant to to do spirituality by your lonesome in solitude. You were created to live in community, to be around other people who unfortunately are broken, messed up, sinful like you are, but that are pressing toward Jesus. Christianity is experienced relationally. When you meet people and surround yourself with the people of God, you experience the secret of Christianity. And this is our third point is joy. Christianity is joyful. Verse four. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I have to be honest. If I were writing the Bible, if God had picked me to be a scripture writer, I wouldn't have stuck joyful in there. I wouldn't have put joy would not be in, in my Bible at all because I have a difficult time with joy. I do. I was leaving. Uh, I was leaving home for church two weeks ago. My, me and my boys getting ready to set up. My wife yells out to us. Hey, don't forget. Christians are joyful. <laughs> I'm the pastor. She had to remind me of that. I was like, what's going on? Here's the thing. God wants us to be joyful. That's, that's the picture that we get in Scripture. That's why John wrote it. A lot of times we get happy and joyful mix, mixed up. Uh, we think that we're supposed to be happy all the time, that we're supposed to have cake and ice cream, balloons falling around with us. And I mean, just life is like, yay! That's, God, God is okay with you being happy. But you're not going to be like that all the time. Rather, God gives us a picture of life. It's, it's, it's raining on you, and then it starts lightning. Your, your umbrella 
flies up and just leaves you. Life sucks, but you still have a contentment about your life and about the God that you, you're not just going to flee him and your faith because life gets hard. That's the picture God wants you to have of, of Christianity. And the description of that is joy. Joy. God is a God of joy. In fact, the picture that we get of Jesus in scripture is that he is the most joyful person to, to ever live on the face of the earth. This is what Hebrews 12 says, that Jesus, the, the profounder and factor of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Those are crazy words right there, folks. It's saying that there, although there was pain and agony and and the I mean, he was dismissed by God himself on the cross. My, my God, my God, why would you forsake me? Jesus found a joy in what he was doing because he was satisfying the will of his father. This joy and contentment in Christianity. Joy and Christianity go together. And so, I mean, the question for us to ask, that's the end of the passage that we're going to read. If I'm outside of the Christianity and this is it, at least a little bit appealing. I mean, how do I get it? How do I understand the perspective that Christianity is, is historical? How do I understand it in an experiential nature so that I would want to have fellowship with, with people who know Jesus? But more importantly, I mean, how do I get some joy in my life? How do I get it? Do I have to give money? That's what most people think. Do I have to come to church all the time? Do I have to look like I have a perfect life? Do I have, do I have to have my life all together? Not in this, in this particular text, but if we would go back to the Gospel of John, John says no to all, all of those. In fact, he only gives us one word. John says the way that you would have all these things and ultimately a perspective of joy in your life is that you do one thing. You believe. Believe. B-E-L-I-E-V-E. Believe. Almost 80 times in the Gospel of John, almost 20 Additional times throughout this letter of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John uses the word believe. And a lot of times we can think of believe as just a, a mental ascent. I'm going to force myself. I'm going to close my eyes real hard. Oh, I got to believe. I got to believe. We were watching TV the other night, and I, you know, our kids aren't nostalgic like I am, but The Wizard of Oz was on. It was at the very end, and I had to make them watch it. I had to. And it was at the part where Dorothy just clicked her heels three times. I would think, what was it, Jonathan? There's no place like home. I couldn't even remember it. There's no place like home. Jonathan's like, he remembers everything. I knew he remembered. There's no place like home. This is not what Jesus is talking about. Not not mental ascent like that. That's not the kind of belief he wants you to have. He wants you to trust. He wants you to depend on him. He wants you to surrender. He wants you to believe. Here's an illustration. In the 19th century, the greatest tightrope walker in the world was a man named Charles Blondin. He's called the Great Blondin. He was born June 30th, 1859. He became the first man in history to walk on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Over 25,000 people gathered to watch him walk 1,100 feet uh, suspended on a tightrope, 160 feet above the raging waters. He worked without a net or safety harness of any kind. 
The slightest slip would prove fatal. When he safely reached the Canadian side of Niagara, uh, it was called Niagara Gorge at that time, the crowd burst into a mighty roar. <sighs> we can't believe he did that. He was a part of a carnival, okay, and he had always wanted to do that, and so um, he got across safely. And guess what? He made a spectacle of it. He kept doing it over and over. He, I, I've done it. I'm going to make some money now. All these fools out here looking, I'm going to make me some money. And so in the days that followed, he walked across the falls many times. Once he walked across on stilts, another time he took a chair and a stove with him and sat down midway across. He cooked an omelet. Isn't that insane? One time he put a, I think it said a dishwasher on his back. Not dishwasher, couldn't have a dishwasher on, or a little bit, uh, whatever a refrigerator looked like back in those days. Once he pushed a wheelbarrow across with 350 pounds of cement, there's one occasion he asked the cheering spectators if they would, if they thought he could push a man across in a wheelbarrow. And of course, all the crowd yelled, of course we think you can do that. We've seen you do some just crazy stuff, just walking across this tightrope and not falling down. And so this is what he says. All right, so if you think I can do that, um, who's willing to let me carry you across in a wheelbarrow? Crowd goes silent. No, I mean, they just turn around like, hmm, 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 hmm. I ain't doing that. So he ends up asking his manager to get on his back. And he walks across. Check out the picture. That's an actual picture. So there's, there's many renditions of this story. I'm only giving you the one I like. So um, the story is that as he was going across with his manager, he got three quarters of the way across and he got tired. He was like sweating. He's like, this is harder than I thought it was going to be. This dude is heavy. And so he asked him to get down. Can you believe that? It's crazy. So his manager got, got down. And he was like shaking on the, shaking on the wire. And then, uh, and then when the great blonde had gotten his strength back, he, he tried to get back up. And of course, he's got these little uh, shiny, He's a he's a carnivalist, man. <laughs> he's got on his leotard. So it was a little tough to get back. I can't imagine this. You're 160 feet up in the air. And you, but he got back up and he figured out that he was he was he, he was exhausted. So he had to run to the finish line. But he made it across. He made it across. You know, one of the one of the things that goes with the word believe in John's writing is a small preposition. Uh, and the preposition is in or into. It's the Greek word ice, uh, epsilon, iota, uh, sigma, E-I-S. You know, a lot of people believed Charles Blondin. They saw him do some pretty gutsy tricks. I mean, he did some pretty, I mean, just outlandish stuff. But only his manager believed in or into him. He did that when he got on his back and let him carry him across that gorge. And this is what I'm talking about when I, when I say Believe in Jesus. We're called to believe, not just to believe that he exists, not to believe that he was God and then became a man and rose from the grave. We're, we're charged to believe in or into him such that we would get on his back, that we would let him step out on a tightrope and walk with nothing but a pole and make it all across, all the way across a 11,000 foot gorge of Niagara Falls, knowing that if he messes up, I'm going to fall with him to my eventual death. That's what I would say. This is what God is calling us to. The interesting thing is no one but that manager had faith in 
Charles Blondin. And I want you to think about that for a second. What, what, was, what, was, the, what was the faith in? Did the, did, the man, did the manager have faith that Charles could do it or they have faith in himself? All right, I'm going to stay up here and I'm going to stay up here perfectly. He had faith in the strength of Charles to get him across because he had seen it several times. And that's what we're called to in regards to Jesus. We're called to have faith not in our ability to stay on his back or in the tightrope staying up. We're, to, we're called to have faith in the strength of the object of our faith, Jesus. And that's what this illustration is for. And that really is my offer for you today. And I think John would concur with that in, in what he's written, that you can give yourself totally, fully, utterly to Jesus, like a, like a man climbing up on the back of a, a tightrope artist and letting him take you across. Are there going to be doubts? Absolutely. I can imagine that that manager, um, he was probably appeasing the crowd and wanted his, you know, his client to be successful that day. But for whatever reason, he put his faith in the object that, that had the strength to do it. And God is calling all of us in this room to do the same thing. Let's not depend on our own strength. Let's not depend on um, what we know to be true. Let's put our strength in the one that has the actual power to save us. And his name is Jesus. You know, there's, there's typically three reasons why we don't, why we, why we may f- doubt, why we may f- fail to believe these come from C.S. Lewis. The first is content, not enough content. That means you just don't know the story. You haven't heard the, the good news, and you don't understand why it's good. And hopefully I've helped you out with a little bit of that. But I would tell you, this is what you got to do. you got to pick this book up, and you got to read it a little bit. The second thing is, is coherence. And that simply means you can't put the story together. That you can't put, you know, what happened first and second and third, and that may be a few of you, and I would encourage you, this is what the church is for. This is what the fellowship of the saints is for, to, to help disciple you, to help you learn how to walk with Jesus, and we would love to do that with you as well. And the third is, is the most important, and it's cost. What will it cost me to put my trust, not in myself, but to put my trust in the one that can get me over this tightrope, over this, this huge gorge? What will it cost me to get on the back of Jesus? What will it cost me to realize I don't have to live a perfect life, that Jesus has already done it for me? What will it cost me to realize I don't have to pay for my sins because Jesus has already paid for my sins for me, dying in my place on the cross? What will it cost to stop trying to strengthen myself and to live in his strength only because of the resurrection? And so everything comes at a cost. You got to give up something. But here's the deal with Jesus. What you give up, you gain in eternal reward. What you give up, you gain in the joy that he gives you as you sacrificially serve him. The cost is real. But I want to give you an opportunity today to, to, to baby buy into the cost. Some of you here are, are believers. And it's, I mean, it's Easter. And perhaps... Uh, you are reminded today of nothing more than you just need to gain your resurrection power back. And I'd like to pray for all of us in that regard. Let's pray. Lord, what a privileged people we are that we get to stand on this side of the cross and marvel at what you've done for us. 
Lord, it's hard to believe that God would love us so much that he would give up his son, his only son, to die in our place. Lord, we celebrate today not only that Jesus died, but that he rose again and that he lives forevermore. We say that our Savior has risen. I pray for those here in in this room. Firstly, for those who have been walking with you for many years, that they're Christians. They, you know, they call themselves a follower of Jesus. I pray that the resurrection would be new. Lord God, that you would give them greater faith to believe, that you would give them greater courage to trust in you, that like that manager on the back of Charles Blondin, that you would give them the unction to forsake all that they know, all the ways that they're walking in their own strength, and then they would have courage to to surrender to you, to get on your back and to, to go across that gorge with you. I pray for those here who have yet to trust in Jesus, Lord, that you would open their eyes to the good news of a God that loves them despite their sin. God, I pray that you would cause them to trust in you. Give them faith, as John says, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he's come not only to make himself known, but to give life eternal. That is our prayer today. We pray this in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.